Support for this podcast comes from ODC Dance. The world-class company returns for Dance Downtown, March 27th through the 31st, with two electrifying programs and five works, springing from cartoon, the news, and human connection. ODC.dance slash downtown. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. From KQBD Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, we recap the first half of the Republican National Convention, which has gone from San Francisco's former First Lady Kimberly Guilfoyle calling California a land of discarded heroin needles, to First Lady Melania Trump last night notably acknowledging the pandemic's toll. We'll preview what's ahead. Then senior Trump policy advisor and speechwriter Stephen Miller is known for pushing the administration's most extreme policies, including family separations. We'll talk with investigative reporter Jean Guerrero about how Miller went from right-wing troll to holding considerable power in the nation's executive branch. Join us. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. The first two days of the 2020 Republican National Convention have been heavy on dystopian views of a Joe Biden presidency. Notably missing has been acknowledgement of the pandemic's toll until last night when First Lady Melania Trump said this. I want to acknowledge the fact that since March, our lives have changed drastically. The invisible enemy, COVID-19, swept across our beautiful country and impacted all of us. My deepest sympathy goes out to everyone who has lost a loved one. And my prayers are with those who are ill or suffering. Joining me now for analysis of the RNC is KQED's Guy Marzarati. Hi, Guy. Good morning. Melania Trump's words, they were such a stark contrast to the language economic advisor Larry Kudlow used to describe the pandemic earlier in the night. Guy, your reaction to the speech and the role of the pandemic at the convention so far? Well, right. I think it's incredible that you could have watched the programming last night right up until the last half an hour when the first lady gave her speech from Rose Garden and be completely unaware uh, that this administration is currently presiding over not only the worst pandemic uh, in 100 years, but the worst recession in 75 years. And I guess the guiding principle they must be using is, you know, if you're explaining, you're losing. As you mentioned, economic advisor Larry Kudlow spoke about the pandemic in the past tense. They seem to be uh, going under the presumption that people just won't notice if they don't mention it. But a thousand people did die yesterday uh, from the coronavirus. And I think it's a big gamble um, that they're taking that perhaps something other than the virus and the economy will be the top issue in November, um, which is a big risk. Yeah, that was actually my next question is, um, you know, do you think this type of strategy is working, will work? I mean, uh, I don't have a crystal ball, but I, I would say, um, you know, the economy has played a huge role in many presidential elections, unemployment numbers. It's interesting to note that sometimes the trend in unemployment numbers can be more important than the actual total. Um, you know, unemployment uh, when Barack Obama ran for a second term in 2012 uh, was at over 7%, but it was trending down. And I think voters felt maybe the economy is headed in the right direction. It remains to be seen if that's the case in November or if the lack of aid coming from the federal government will spur a new round of layoffs on state and local governments that will just add to the already historic totals. Well, the slightly more cheerful, and as you said, the one that was trying to say that, you know, the pandemic is sort of behind us or the worst of it is behind us and not acknowledging the economic recession, sort of the more cheerful uh, version of the RNC seemed to be last night compared with the first day, which felt quite a bit darker. And it was interesting how much of the ire was directed at California. California featured pretty prominently on the first day. Right. It's definitely it's been the boogeyman of this administration for years. That continued on Monday night 
We heard from Kimberly Guilfoyle, who's a campaign advisor, the girlfriend of Donald Trump Jr. We should add a Bay Area native uh, and the former wife of our current governor, Gavin Newsom, uh, delivered perhaps the most harsh rebuke uh, against the state, talking about you know a land of discarded uh, heroin needles. Um, I think you probably expect to hear more of that tomorrow night from House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy. He's probably the most prominent Californian who will be appearing in the convention, Congressman from Bakersfield. Um, again, I think that you know this is a portrait of the state that's been portrayed by this administration for years as a place of out of control uh, liberal governance. Um, it's a little bit harder to tie that to Joe Biden than it is to, to his vice president, Kamala Harris, who comes from California. You know, I think Joe Biden remains pretty well defined uh, in voters' eyes and radical and far uh, left is not what typically comes to mind. Well, let's play a little bit of that Guilfoyle speech. Here she is. If you want to see the socialist Biden-Harris future for our country, just take a look at California. It is a place of immense wealth, immeasurable innovation, and immaculate environment. And the Democrats turned it into a land of discarded heroin needles in parks, riots in streets, and blackouts in homes. Definitely some strong language there. She also, I mean, she has become a bit of a meme now because, as you could hear there, she really did raise the volume level on her speech as if it was something that was happening at a rally. And and clearly, you know, one of the things that has been so such a big part of these conventions is the fact that they've had to work around the fact that this is not there really isn't a big audience right yeah i mean i don't i actually think for both of these conventions it's hard to envision a return to the historical convention format after this i mean th this kind of tv programming format provides such a opportunity for political strategists to really just present whatever reality they feel like you're not going to see things that you saw at the republican convention four years ago where Ted Cruz gave a speech, uh, you know, vote for your conscience, not really giving an endorsement uh, of then candidate Donald Trump or four years ago at the Democratic convention when delegates uh, of Bernie Sanders, you know, stormed some committee meetings and, and rallied against uh, supporters of Hillary Clinton. So all that has kind of been scrubbed in this uh, more cinematic convention format. And I think that plays into you know what, what a campaign strategist would want, which is you get four days uninterrupted to kind of shape whatever message that you want to deliver to the public. Although it's unclear at this point, who's really watching? Is this a, mm. a television event for swing voters or is this something that you know the party faithful is tuning in for? We're checking in on the Republican National Convention with Guy Marzarati, and I'd like to invite you, our listeners, to join the conversation. Have you been watching? Why or why not? And, and if you have, what moments have stood out for you, give us a call, 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. Guy is with us for the next five or six minutes or so, so the time to call is now. Lisa tweets, I'm not watching. Life is too stressful already. Watching the lies makes me physically ill. Such a contrast to last week's Positivity Festival. Uh, Bill writes, it seems to me that Democrats didn't get a bump from their convention. Do you think they should talk about Trump's broken promise that taxpayers, not Mexico, are paying for his border wall? Uh, DNC, did they get a bump? Well, we haven't seen one yet, but I think it's an interesting point that perhaps the post-convention bump is a thing of the past. It's, you know, in the last few presidential cycles has become less and less of an impact. And really all the traditional barometers or calendar events of the election year the conventions, the debate, the selection of a vice presidential candidate seem to matter less and less in recent years. And I think it, it could be even more so this year because the two candidates are incredibly well-defined. I don't think anyone is tuning into these conventions having no idea who Donald Trump is or no idea who Joe Biden is. And so these typical hallmark events um, where you know maybe ca more casual political followers are tuning in for the first time, I'm not sure anyone's opinion is really unsolidified at this point. And you mentioned um, before I invited calls that this has really been a norm-breaking format. And it's also been norm-breaking and potentially illegal in the way that the White House and federal employees have been used as well. Right, Kai? Absolutely. And that was a, a big theme of last night is using the White House. Interestingly, using it uh, and using the president's executive power in this television programming 
not so much as the hard power. It wasn't a military parade that was on TV. It was kind of used to image soften. It was he was pardoning a bank robber. He was uh, presiding over a naturalization ceremony. And I think this is, you know, if it's signaling to anyone, it's maybe to those suburban voters, uh, more traditional Republicans who might be able to be brought home by showing of this executive power. I mean, look, the power of the presidency, the power of incumbency, it's real. There's two, two incumbents have lost in the last 40 years. I think that's significant. And it's definitely the message that uh, the Trump campaign was trying to get at last night and using the Rose Garden for speeches and using these you know, different executive offices during the program. Clearly, though, for everyone besides the president and the vice president, it's a violation of the Hatch Act. You're not allowed to use uh, these kind of executive authorities in a political atmosphere. But that act has largely been toothless um, on both Democrats and Republicans in recent years. There have been multiple violations called out of the Trump administration with really no um, you know, results. Um, and so there's no expectation that that will change because of what happened last night. Well, um, you know, one of the things that was interesting was there did seem to be at least a little bit of the laying of the groundwork of what Trump may do in his next four years based on all the ways that his son, Eric Trump, touted his dad's accomplishments in the last four years. I mean, what do you think that is moving forward for the president? What is his plan moving forward? I think that's a huge question mark, honestly, coming out of both of these conventions. I felt like both of both parties have amped up the stakes, right? They've they've messaged over and over again how important this election is with really presenting little idea of what exactly either man would do if elected in January of 2021, besides dealing with the coronavirus. But if you take COVID out of the equation, it's unclear what would the first 100 days look like of a second term of President Trump, or what would the top priority in the first 100 days be under Joe Biden? But I think that was a huge opportunity for the Republicans going into this convention to define that. And we've really yet to hear it through two nights. Well, I do have to say that the one sort of hopeful note that I heard came from Tim Scott. He, of course, is the senator from South Carolina. And, you know, he highlighted how he won a seat as representative of a mostly white district against Thurman, son of U.S. Senator Strom Thurmond, so against Paul Thurmond. And I, I want to play a little bit of that. We live in a world that only wants you to believe in the bad news, racially, economically, and culturally polarizing news. The truth is, our nation's arc always bends back towards fairness. If you had to pick like one of the strongest moments to you, Guy, so far, what's it been? Well, I think that speech stood out. And there was, you know, I think many of these Republican uh, electeds are using these speeches to kind of elevate their own profiles, right? There will be an opening in 2024. And I think you've seen from both Scott, um, you know, last night from Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. You'll hear that tonight from Vice President Pence. Um, people trying to brandish kind of their own credentials, their own stories. Tim Scott talked about his own family history in a really effective way. He talked about having his family go from cotton to Congress in one generation. Um, and so I think you're seeing individual Republicans try to present their own story uh, in this convention format. We're talking with Guy Marzarati about this week's Republican National Convention. We'll also continue the conversation with investigative journalist Jean Guerrero after the break. And you, our listeners, questions, comments, give us a call, 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about the Republican National Convention, and we'll be talking more about the Trump administration as well with Guy Marzarati, reporter and producer for KQED's California Politics and Government Desk. And also with us now is Jean Guerrero, an investigative journalist who's written a new book, Hate Monger, Stephen Miller, Donald Trump, and the White Nationalist Agenda. Thanks for joining us, Jean Guerrero. Great to be here. You know, one of the things that really stood out to me uh, during 
the RNC last night was actually the naturalization ceremony that uh, President Trump held at the White House. It was presided over by by Chad. Well, first, can I just get your reaction to that as someone who has covered the administration's immigration policy and, you know, saw that display last night? Yeah, I mean, that naturalization ceremony is supposed to create this idea in people's minds that the Trump administration is, you know, that they advocate legal immigration and that they, you know, that they, they, they're they all about providing a legal pathway, which is completely false. You know, based on my reporting for, for the book Hatemonger, it's clear that the man who is designing immigration policies for Donald Trump has, you know, disproportionately impacted families who have broken no laws, you know, primarily asylum seekers, dismantling the asylum system at the U.S.-Mexico border, slashing refugee admissions to new historic lows every year, and, you know, suspending green card access. So the the impact has has really been on, on families, you know, from Central America, from Latin America, from Africa, who have, who, who come here fleeing persecution. And so this ceremony is, is really just a show to, to, to paint the administration as standing for something other than what they actually stand for. Well, Pete tweets, please address the fact that saturating their base with cognitive dissonance 24-7 has been a Republican and Fox News strategy for decades. Mary writes, I feel like when I listen to the RNC, I'm getting a completely different perspective of reality. It almost seems like a delusion of reality, rather. How is it possible that the reality that they portray is so different from what we experience in our day-to-day lives? How do people believe it? I mean, Guy Marzarati, it did feel like last night there wasn't this attempt to really soften the president or to explain sort of his behavior and his his harshness. I mean, I'm going to play actually a clip, another clip from Melania Trump's speech where, where she talks about the way her husband communicates. We all know Donald Trump makes no secrets about how he feels about things. Total honesty is what we as citizens deserve from our president, whether you like it or not. You always know what he's thinking. Guy, what do you think? Well, yeah, I think you're you're right. There was an attempt at either softening or explaining, um, you know, his perceived rough image. But again, I'm not sure who after four or five years is still open um, to new interpretations or new arguments about the president's demeanor. There weren't really any of that kind of softening or explaining when it came to the actual state of the country that uh, that tweeter mentioned. I mean, again, really no discussion of the what's happening with the economy right now and with the pandemic right now, other than to say, you know, for the first three years of the administration, the economy was doing incredibly well. Well, let me go to Becca in Berkeley. Hi, Becca. Join us. Hi, good morning. Thanks for taking my call. Um, so I've been watching, I haven't watched everything, but I've been watching um, both the DNC and the RNC. To me, you know, I have a couple things to say. First of all, the whole thing feels very, very much like propaganda on both sides. Sort of brought me back. I don't know if any of you have seen the the documentary American Factory that was produced actually by the Obamas. It's on Netflix about you know this uh, car glass factory, but it sort of felt like you know the stuff I've seen in North Korea or in China. This nationalistic kind of phony world that we're putting towards so that people ignore what's going on. So that's one thing I wanted to say. And then, you know, I'm I'm a 40 year, 40 of my 50 years, born and raised, aside from a few years in New York, lived in Berkeley. And I'm really sad about the state of California. And that rang true for me, sadly, when I was listening to Kimberly Guilfoyle's very strange speech. You know, we've got AB5 um, in the PRO Act, you know, people, freelancers not having work during this crisis the houselessness crisis, the opioid crisis, you know, people are leaving California in droves and ending up on the streets. And Mm. so I think California is really going through a really difficult time. So it's understandable why it's being presented. And now we have, of course, the fires. And some of this is the nature of the West. Some of it is that the weather's here. So people are coming here because it's easier to survive on the street. But California really needs to um, look at some of that and, you know, take care of its people, which I think the Democrats are not doing right now. So I think that's some of what's being highlighted. Thank you Be- so much. Yeah, Becca, thanks for sharing that. I mean, 
Jean Guerrero, you know, Stephen Miller is a California native, Kimberly Guilfoyle, uh, obviously a California native as well. Do you think it is an effective strategy? And, and do they know well what works with voters who are likely to go to Trump, that, that this is the way to go, make California, you know, your poster child for everything that could go wrong under a Democrat president? Well, I think part of the reason that they're using California as this poster child is because of the fact that they're, you know, trying to incite white fear and and, and racism associated with the with the quote browning of, of of America. I mean, in the in the California that Stephen Miller was growing up in, white people, non-Hispanic white people, became a minority for the first time in the 90s. And there was this real scapegoating that happened. I mean, you saw unprecedented statewide bipartisan attacks on bilingual education, on, you know, social services for children of undocumented migrants, on, you know, affirmative action. And, you know, it, it's one thing for the Republican Party to, to argue that it's, you know, economic uh, you know, policy goals are, are different or more effective than, than, the, than the Democrats. But it's another thing for them to deliberately, you know, scapegoat and demonize immigrants and, and Black Lives Matter and the, the Democratic Party for its alliances with people of color, which is something that you see them doing deliberately. I mean, based on my reporting for the book, this is a, a strategy that, that they have been that they have been using deliberately. And, and, you know, from the RNC last night, one of the speakers, Marianne Mendoza, she was going she she was going to come speak about her son who was killed in a car accident with a person who was here illegally but she was removed because you know she had been she retweeted a, a, a QAnon anti-Semitic, completely crazy conspiracy theory. And this is a woman who has been repeatedly given a platform in the White House by Stephen Miller, who I wrote my book about, to spew completely fabricated statistics about migrant crimes, trying to paint migrants and people of color as more innately violent than white people. And this is a strategy that whether you agree with the Republican Party's economic you know, platform or not, I mean, this is something that is very dangerous and has been, you know, inciting white fear and white hatred and, and attacks like what we saw in El Paso last August, where 23 people were killed because, you know, a person, a white terrorist thought that he was somehow saving the United States from this, quote unquote, Hispanic invasion. Well, let me go next to Bradley in San Francisco. Hi, Bradley. Good morning. Um, uh very interested in the book. I hope to read it. It sounds great. But I wanted to just comment on how the Trump um, appropriation of the Republican National Convention, you know, you saw on all the podiums, Trump 2020, it wasn't like RNC or, you know, you know, as a, as a childhood uh, Republican, I'm, I'm pretty horrified, you know, and they didn't televise the roll call of states, but this characters like David Vossi, who was called out even by the president for having a complete scam uh, pack, raising money that most like, you know, a tiny fraction even went to the, the Trump campaign. And the rest was appropriated by the, the pack uh, operators and Corey Lewandowski uh, calling out the votes for um, New Hampshire had a similarly shady scam going on. And so it's like, who is the party being turned over to? And, um, you know, and then you see all of these Trump family members uh, on the podium, even Tiffany, you know, who we really haven't seen that much of when you had more Trumps than people of color speaking. It's just a little bit too much. Well, Bradley, uh, appreciate you sharing that. I mean, it is very different, Guy Marzarotti, to see the president as an incumbent at this Republican National Convention than what he was four years ago. Definitely. But I would say many themes remain the same, right? I think night one this year, Monday night, with the themes of, you know, trying to incite fear and what a country would look like under democratic governance was very similar to the RNC of 2016. Um, I think people four years ago felt like there's no way that kind of message of fear mongering would work in a national election. Clearly that was wrong. And so I don't think uh, necessarily going back to this, that old theme uh, will, you know, undo Trump in this election. But right, to, to the caller's point, I think it is jarring to just see the complete family takeover uh, that the Trumps have had on the Republican Party. At one point, 
the Chiron on the TV last night, it was, you know, three or four family members back to back speaking. Um, that's definitely been apparent in the administration, the family influence. Um, and I would expect you're going to see that beyond uh, Donald Trump's own time in the White House. I think, you know, there's a lot of speculation his son is gearing up for a run in 2024. And I, I think that certainly seems possible, given the increasing stage uh, that Donald Trump Jr. is being given um, at these events. Well, and uh, Guy, by the way, thanks so much for staying on a little bit longer. Can you give us a little bit of a preview of what's to come or what you're going to be watching? Sure. So I think, you know, the biggest California angle uh, left for this week is this Thursday night address of, of Kevin McCarthy, the congressman from Bakersfield, House Minority Leader, um, who, you know, in speaking about the Democratic Convention last week, relied again on those themes of, you know, we can't let America turn into California. And I would say, you know, on that point, and to Gene's point as well, there's a definite separation between the policy differences that Republicans in California have with Democratic governance, whether that's, you know, over employment law, AB5, you know, the caller mentioned classifying independent contractors as employees. We've heard criticism of Democratic uh, energy policy this past week during blackouts. It's, we've shifted away from relying on greenhouse gases and as a side effect, or maybe more vulnerable to the storage uh, problems that wind and solar have. That is all separate from the cultural issues that I think these uh, conventions are hitting on when they talk about California. I think they're signaling the kind of multicultural uh, state that we are. Um, and and I think that's so I, I think there's two different lines of attack happening on California. Well, Guy Marzarati, thanks so much for talking with us. Appreciate it. Thanks. Guy Marzarati, reporter and producer for KQED's California Politics and Government Desk. And we'll end this discussion where we began with uh, Melania Trump's speech, getting a couple of comments on that. This listener tweets, yes, Trump tells us what he thinks with no filter, but let's not forget that what he thinks is detached from what's actually going on. Being honest is not an excuse for misinformation. Shirley writes, First Lady Melania Trump gave us an island of humanity in a sea of divisive policies. She has no impact on the policies of the administration. She was glossing over to sweeten the hateful pot. And then this listener writes, I think it's important important to know that to know thine enemy painful as it might be we have to know what we're dealing with in these times. Well, I'm so glad Jean Guerrero is with us because she will help us know a little bit more about what we are truly dealing with, the ideology that seems to hold sway over the president uh, at this time. Jean Guerrero, of course, is an investigative reporter and author. Her new book is Hate Monger, Stephen Miller, Donald Trump, and the White Nationalist Agenda. And we're talking with you, our listeners. Let me go next to Steve in Oakland. Hi, Steve. Hi. Um, I just I'm really curious to see, uh, find out what the Jewish community in general thinks of, of Stephen Miller. I know his uncle came out a while back and spoke about his nephew, but but I haven't heard anything from the from the Jewish community across the country. And I'm curious about that. Hmm. Steve, thanks. Uh, Jean Guerrero. Yeah, a number of Jewish American organizations have come out to condemn Stephen Miller and the policies that he has put in place and the rhetoric that he has inserted into into Trump's speeches. Um, one of the things that I delve into in the in the book is this, you know, this contradiction, this 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 mystery of how Stephen Miller, you know, uses language of, of neo Nazis and, and you know has close ties with neo Nazi groups who who vilify the Jewish people. Um, and and I delve into how his family, most of his family members, are sh shocked uh, at what he has been doing, you know. And and what you know for his for example, his grandmother on his mother's side, Ruth, she spent her entire retirement compiling the family history into this document for her grandchildren so that they would never forget the value of people who come to this country with nothing but the clothes on their backs and speaking no English the way that Stephen Miller's great-grandparents came fleeing persecution and nationalist agitators in Eastern Europe. And this is a lesson that, you know, Stephen Miller completely disregarded and, and in fact assaulted for a majority of his life as I as I show in the book and it's you know it's a real mystery to most to, to most Jewish organizations that have come out and said that you know if the policies that Stephen Miller has been pushing in this White House had been in place when Stephen Miller's ancestors tried to come here in the early 1900s then Stephen Miller would not be alive today. I mean, as you've noted, Miller's lasted longer than many other senior White House officials. And I mean, just how close and influential is he to the president? 
He is officially the longest lasting advisor in this White House outside of the president's own family and the most trusted advisor of Donald Trump. And part of this has roots in Stephen Miller's childhood, which I delve into in in the book. I mean, Stephen Miller's father is a real estate investor who is plagued by bankruptcies and legal disputes legal disputes related to his real estate company, you know, very much described to me as being very similar to Donald Trump in his business dealings, someone who in court documents is described as a masterpiece of evasion and manipulation. So many people I spoke with said Stephen Miller, because his father was so similar to Donald Trump, he, he gets Donald Trump in, in a way that nobody else in the White House does. He gets him emotionally, he gets him spiritually, he gets him psychologically. And the one key thing about Stephen Miller is he always pushes Trump in the most aggressive direction, both in his rhetoric, you know, using the most incendiary language possible, apocalypse mongering, you know, talking about the radical left wanting to tear down this country, you know, inserting descriptions of of gory, vivid descriptions of migrant crimes into, into his speeches to incite hatred. But also in his policies, you know, when Trump first announced his candidacy, his only immigration policy was the border wall. And people who have been following the immigration issue for a very long time kind of rolled their eyes at that because they knew that, you know, we've had hundreds of border barriers for decades and they've done very little to deter flows of immigration, which have simply gone underground into clandestine tunnels and, you know, to other parts of the border. And Stephen Miller is the person who began to pull policies directly from think tanks that were created by white supremacists and eugenicists who believe in population control for non-white people and, you know, gave gave Donald Trump in, incredible credibili- credibility with, you know, th- these these white nationalist groups and, and, and rallied people around him in a way that led Trump to believe that Stephen Miller was critical for his win in 2016 and believes that Stephen Miller will be critical for his if he wants to win in November. And so you see him leaning more and more into this, you know, apocalyptic demonization that Stephen Miller is so skilled at and also just scapegoating immigrants, you know, in response to the pandemic, suspending green card access, completely shutting down the asylum system at the border instead of focusing on, you know, distributing masks and, and medical equipment. And I mean, his views are still characterized as extreme, even among Republicans, right? Well, it's changing. I mean, Mm -hmm. Stephen Miller has essentially accomplished something that has, 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 you know, never been done before. I mean, Stephen Miller has radicalized the Republican Party. And this started, you know, back in 2012, 2013, 2014, when he was working for Alabama Senator Jeff Sessions. Back then, the Republican Party was having a real reckoning. They were talking about needing to become more diverse and inclusive, and Miller pushed it in the other direction. Hmm. Well, we will have more with how Miller became who he was as someone who grew up in liberal parts of Southern California, the the son of Jewish Democrats. We'll have more with Jean Guerrero after the break and with you, our listeners. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Author and award-winning investigative reporter, formerly with KPBS, Jean Guerrero, has written a new book about the people and policies that turned Stephen Miller into a right-wing ideologue. He's President Trump's senior policy advisor and speechwriter known for pushing the administration's family separation policy at the southern border and for drafting parts of the travel ban targeting majority Muslim countries that led to chaos and mass protests. And we're inviting you, our listeners, to join the conversation. What are your questions for Jean Guerrero about the ideology that guides uh, the White House and Stephen Miller's role in it. Questions specifically about Stephen Miller and his rise. 866-733-6786 is the number to call. 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. So one of the things, Jean Guerrero, that was really new to me was just the early influencers in Stephen Miller's life. Can you talk about uh, David Horowitz and and how he came into Miller's life? 
Yeah. So when Stephen Miller was a teenager, he met this man named David Horowitz, who is a former Marxist turned right-wing radical, who at the time was was looking for young conservative men like Stephen Miller and 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 teaching them the the language of the civil rights movement and to to use it to weaponize it against the civil rights movement. So for example, teaching, you know, teaching them to call people of color and liberals the real racists or the real oppressors and painting white conservative men as victims of discrimination or oppressed minorities. So completely inverting the language of the left against the left. And, you know, Stephen Miller was a teenager. He had he was going through a hard time. He he had his father had lost a lot of money from his real estate company. And so they'd had to move from this very affluent part of Santa Monica, California to a slightly less affluent part. And and Stephen Miller, you know, this is when you see Stephen Miller expressing these, these very racist viewpoints, going around telling his Mexican classmates to go back to their countries, going into school board meetings to argue against measures to improve racial equity, calling into a local talk radio show to complain about multiculturalism. And this is when David Horowitz, you know, hears Stephen Miller as a teenager on the radio, you know, goes to speak at his high school and they start to develop this relationship that, according to private correspondence I obtained for the book, lasted for, for through, you know, through his time in the White House. David Horowitz introduced Stephen Miller to this fantasy that he had to save the United States from certain destruction in the form of the Democratic Party partnering with Muslims and other people who always happen to be people of color. This is a man who believes that the only real racism is racism against white men. And he essentially indoctrinated Stephen Miller. I mean, I see Stephen Miller as a true case study in radicalization, uh, mm. you know, w- was feeling displaced, was feeling angry, you know, fit the profile of someone easily radicalized. And with Horowitz's help, Miller learned how to launder white supremacist ideas through the language of heritage and the language of economics and the language of national security in order to make them palatable to the mainstream, which is what you see, you know, in the RNC and and, in, in the white house, you know, this idea that people that black lives matter or that immigrants pose some kind of existential threat to civilization, but they paint it in terms of, you know, rather than race and skin color, they talk about trying to protect, you know, American jobs or trying to protect American property or trying to protect, you know, national security. Yes. And I think one of the other things that your book really points out is the other character trait that Miller had that made him a great person to, uh, to use your word, indoctrinate for Horowitz was also that he was, he was someone who had a particular skill at getting under people's skin. I mean, you, you quote one of his high school counselors saying that he was born with an ability to bring out anger from people and he rejoiced in that. It made him powerful. Exactly. I mean, from a very young age, Stephen Miller was finding ways to provoke people. He he ran for student government on this platform of, you know, students shouldn't have to pick up their trash because custodians, the janitors are there to do it for them. And these were, you know, just a handful of janitors for hundreds of students. And the janitors were mostly people of color. And, you know, people who were there listening to his speech in in high school felt that he was trying to provoke a race riot in the school, that he he was, you know, that it it gave him a sense of of power, which ultimately landed him in the White House. I mean, it, it gave it gave him access, you know, repeatedly over the course of his time in high school, over the course of his time in college, to to make appearances on Fox News to talk about racial controversies and in a in a very provocative way. Um, and and yeah, I mean, this is he he just and this is why people tell me his policies are about you know, the performance of cruelty. It, and, and it goes back to Stephen Miller just being a, a, an expert at provoking people and and getting under their skin. Well, let me go to Peter in San Francisco. Hi, Peter. Yes, hi. I wanted to just mention that at the convention, there was a, uh, basically the outrageous lies and how the media handles it inadequately, I think. Uh, very often anyway. At the convention, they had a whole uh, propaganda film 
with Trump being the hero of COVID-19, how he sprang into action, how he provided the states with PPE and outrageous lies, flat out lies, uh, one after another, after another, the opposite of the reality. And on the other hand, I've heard even NPR, for example, and I can't remember the specific, but NPR asserted, stated something about what had been asserted as fact at the convention. And then on the other side of it said that such and such a percent or the majority of Americans don't believe that. And I was appalled. I thought, if you have a false fact being stated, don't say what the answer is that people don't believe it. The real thing is to say that's false based on factual reporting and factual understanding. So that worries me a great deal that the media is simply unprepared to call out or fact check or even just state the sort of strategy of flagrant outrageous lying. Peter, thanks for sharing that perspective. I mean, Jean Greer, I think this has definitely been something that media generally has gone through in terms of trying to figure out with its with its norms and its habits how to handle a presidency like that of Trump's and how to handle the normalizing of views like that of Miller's in the Republican Party as well and still manage to try to keep people's eyes and ears. I mean, I was struck by the title of your book, Hate Monger, and uh, Stephen Miller, Donald Trump, and the white nationalist agenda. It feels like you decided you needed to make that clear. Yeah, I mean, as journalists, we have always shied away from using terms like racist or xenophobic to describe, you know, Trump or, or, or anyone really, because we don't know what's in people's hearts. And I think for the most part, that's been very good and very important. I mean, journalistic neutrality is is key. You know, it's what makes journalism such an integral pillar of our democracy. But at the same time, I feel like that reluctance to call things what they are when we have actual evidence, you know, that has created space for white supremacists to operate with impunity within our institutions. So when I chose the title hate monger for the book, I, I'm, I'm not, you know, I didn't write this book to tell anybody that, you know, Stephen Miller has hate in his heart, that he hates Mexicans or that he hates Muslims or that he hates anybody. But, but what I can tell you is that Stephen Miller is fluent in the language of hate. He, you know, directly communicates with people who hate and, and deliberately incites hatred. And this is something, you know, based on private correspondence that I have reviewed, a strategy papers that I've looked at. This is, you know, I, I feel confident telling you that Stephen Miller, you know, he he is a hate monger who stands for hate mongering because he believes in its political utility. And also because of the fact that he was indoctrinated at a young age to believe that somehow by hate mongering, he was saving the United States from mm -hmm. certain destruction. Well, this listener writes, Stephen Miller seems to embody Trump's favorite trope. If you call Trump a racist, he shoots back that he's not racist, but you are for bringing it up. Trump and Miller play the role of aggressor and victim all at the same time. And, and I have to say, in, in reading your book and studying more about his ideology and how he was radicalized, I could kind of see and understand why he might be appealing if you are feeling uncomfortable uh, about race or race stress in this country, right? And and I was thinking so much about how Nikki Haley even addressed this um, during her time at the convention, almost being trying to comfort people into what they would all love to believe in their in their hearts, even if the policies themselves may be racist, that they themselves are not racist and this nation isn't racist. Let me just play it for you really quick. In much of the Democratic Party, it's now fashionable to say that America is racist. That is a lie. America is not a racist country. I mean, in many ways, Miller's strategy is to say we're OK, right? We're a great country. Exactly. Yes. Trying to you know, focus on on the good things in America, which on its own is is not really an issue. Appealing. Yes, <laughs> it is. It is very appealing. And, you know, the some of the hope that we saw in the RNC last night was a real difference from the, the fear that they've been using. I mean, Stephen Miller's mentor specifically told him to, to use fear instead of hope that fear is a much more powerful emotion 
than hope. But I mean, th- you're absolutely right. I mean, these are, it's an incredibly effective strategy to tell people, you know, you're not a bad person. You don't have to be uncomfortable and question, you know, the way that you see the world. And that's why, like, when I went into this project of writing this book, I approached it from a real place of empathy for, for the young Stephen Miller. You know, I remember growing up in Southern California at the same time as Stephen Miller when there was you know, because I'm just a couple years younger than him and, and grew up a couple hours south. And I remember, you know, the Republican governor, Pete Wilson, you know, blaming all of the state's problems on the migrant invasion, you know, talking about there, there was just right, this Prop 187. Yeah. Yeah. The <clears throat> Prop 187 targeting social services for undocumented migrants, which was later found unconstitutional. But there was just, you know, on both sides of the political aisle, like just incredible hostility towards towards immigrants. And I remember as the daughter of a Mexican immigrant and a Puerto Rican mother, I myself internalized that. And so, you know, there was a time when, you know, my dad would wash my hair with chamomile shampoo to try to keep it blonde because of the shame associated with with being perceived as Mexican and all of that hostility that was being directed at us. And so I, I understand Stephen Miller when he talks about you know, wanting to be perceived as American with all of the privileges that that is supposed to guarantee, and 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 you know, I I tried to approach this book from from this empathetic perspective, understanding you know people not not wanting to see themselves as 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 being bad, but rather be, you know belonging. Um, but it, but it, but when you look over the course of the years, I mean, Stephen Miller sounds exactly the same today as he did when he was 16 years old. I mean, the language that he uses, the themes that he's obsessed with, and this is how he has radicalized the Republican Party is, you know, bringing the language of right wing combative talk radio into the White House, onto Capitol Hill. You know, discourse between the Democratic, the Democrats and Republicans used to be a lot more civil until Stephen Miller came in and and just completely changed the way that people talk about the things that they disagree about. Well, JB tweets, I don't have words for how disturbing Miller's whole story is. A caller asked how the Jewish community feels about him. My answer is everyone I know feels truly horrified and frankly confused. This listener asks, what role does Stephen Miller actually play in the White House? I know he's a senior policy advisor and speechwriter, but does he actually serve a major role in designing and putting forth Trump's xenophobic policies? Could you describe the role he played in the family separation policy? Because he didn't dream it up, but what did he do? Exactly. It was an official at ICE who came up with the idea, but Stephen Miller was its primary advocate within the White House. And he made sure that this was in front of Donald Trump, you know, repeatedly and, you know, put pressuring the the, secret, the DHS secretary to sign these memos repeatedly until finally th- th- it was rammed through. I mean, the DHS secretary was sitting on these for a while. And it, so, so Stephen Miller, you know, forced her hand by issuing these presidential memos that 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 forced family separations to start to happen and it was because he truly believed that if you systematically tore children apart from their parents at the border that this would you know trauma- traumatize enough people and scare enough people that families would stop coming to the United States and you know as i suggest as i talked about earlier for Stephen Miller this is about re-engineering the demographic flows, the ethnic flows into this country to keep brown and black families out. And this is why you see such a disproportionate impact on families. And what he has done, he is absolutely the architect of Trump's xenophobic policies. He, you know, slashed refugee admissions to historic lows every year. He, um, through a number of measures, dismantled the asylum system at the U.S.-Mexico border and, you know, found ways to restrict green card access to, to families. And, he, he, he's he's had a disproportionate impact, you know, on immigration, but it has this has consequences outside of immigration as well. You know, Stephen Miller, it's important to note, he's he's a public relations flack who at the age of 31 with no policy experience was put in charge of making policies for this country and essentially put in charge of the Department of Homeland Security, which has this very broad mandate to protect the American people from everything from pandemics to cyber warfare to terrorism. And he narrowed its focus into something that was laser focused on his obsession, which was keeping out families, primarily asylum seekers and and refugees, in order to achieve his goal 
you know, from his white supremacist readings of, you know, d- decreasing the number of brown and black people who come here. Mm. And also he's expected coming up to to play a big role in the president's RNC speech on Thursday night. Exactly. He is Trump's principal speechwriter and you know, over throughout his re-election campaign, Trump has been talking about, you know, anti-racist protesters as agitators and anarchists who want to tear down America, you know, mobs of, of leftists. And this is language that Stephen Miller is pulling directly from this book called The Camp of the Saints. It's a white supremacist book about the destruction of the white world by a horde of brown refugees who are described as monsters and beasts. And it's it's meant to incite hate and, and fear and, and you know, and, and also a hatred towards anti-racist protesters, which the book demonizes specifically as agitators and anarchists and mobs in the same way that Trump is, is talking about them. Well, we just have a minute left, but regardless of what happens in November, where does Miller go or his influence? Well, you know, I think Stephen Miller is always going to have allies in the white nationalists and the nativist movements. One of his main goals, you know, before joining the Trump campaign was to become a senator. And so I do think it's possible that Stephen Miller is going to run for office somewhere. And if not, he'll probably join one of these think tanks that he has drawn repeatedly from that were, you know, funded by eugenicists who believe in the genetic superior superiority of whites, you know, like the Federation for American Immigration Reform or the Center for Immigration Studies. I think it's possible he might, you know, work at one of those think tanks if he doesn't run for office. Gene Guerrero's new book, Hate Monger, Stephen Miller, Donald Trump and the White Nationalist Agenda. Thanks so much for talking with us. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. And thanks to our listeners for their questions and comments. Jameson Weiss produced today's segment. I'm Mina Kim. Thanks for listening. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Generosity Foundation, and the Bernard Osher Foundation, supporting higher education and the arts. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, The smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Hi, I'm Tyler Foggett. Join me and my colleagues as we go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds in politics for insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Make sure you're following The Political Scene, available now wherever you get your podcasts.